Good afternoon, everybody. It's, uh, it's, it's great to be back. This is my third um, research presentation since I was a fellow here a few years ago. Um, I'm not a photographer, but, um, but I have a, a bit of a fascination with photography and I work with some of the very best photographers and I, I've always thought that they've been under-researched. Under so a few years ago I got the opportunity to set up um, a research project with WordPress Photo and I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute uh, as we go along. The question we're asking today, does professional photojournalism have a future? And I hope to give you some things to think about over the course of the next hour or so. So um, just a, a few questions that we're going to go through today. Why study photojournalists? I want to raise a, an issue around this notion of truth and photography. Um, I'm going to subject you all to, to an ethics test. I know that you're not photographers, or most of you are not. Maybe there are one or two here that are. But um, I'd just like to throw a few scenarios at you and see, see how you respond to those. Um, I'll talk about the research project generally, which has been going on for four years uh, so far. Some of the key findings, a bit of a case study, and then we'll get back to the original question. So there's quite a lot to go through in, uh, in half an hour or so. Uh, just put your hand up if I'm talking too quickly or not making any sense or um, if you want to ask me anything. Uh, I think we'll try to keep the, the bulk of the discussion for the end. So I'll rattle through my presentation and then if there are, if there are burning issues that you spot that you'd like to raise, then, then let's do that uh, once the presentation is finished. This is very image-oriented. It is a, a talk about photography. So Quite a few of these images we're only going to look at briefly, but uh, I hope that you'll enjoy, enjoy seeing them. So cracking on. Uh, why photojournalists? Well, I think it's, it's clear that um, the online world is, is driven to a large extent by, by, by the image, by photographs and by video. There's something like 8 billion images uploaded to the internet every single day. And uh, a recent study of American uh, consumers indicated that 50% of them upload photographs onto their social media websites on a daily basis. So the world is totally obsessed with images, often of themselves. Um, and, uh, and this poses particular questions for professional photographers who now have to sell their work in this sea of imagery. They, of course, have traditionally been under-researched in any case. They've also been very vulnerable. I think some of you may have heard of some of the big retrenchments of, of photographers. Sports Illustrated got rid of their whole department. The Chicago Sun Tribune did as well. Romanesco, a scholar, described photojournalism as among the 10 worst jobs available. And you can imagine with the rapidly changing technology, with the restructuring of the, citizen, of, of the news industry, with the arrival of citizen photographers, that, that there are some serious questions to be asked about the sustainability of photographers as a profession in the news industry. So that's really what we're grappling with today. But let's talk a little bit about, about photography's somewhat ambiguous relationship with truth right from the beginning, uh, just as a way of setting the scene. This is one of the first photographs ever taken by a chap called Daguerre, who, using his uh, uh, daguerreoscope, took this photograph of the Boulevard de Temple in 1838. Now, what you'll notice is ordinarily on a day such as that, this particular boulevard would be crammed with people, with horses, with carts, with, with activity. But you'll notice that in this photograph, uh, if you look carefully, you'll see precisely two people. Um, anyone got any ideas as to why an entire street thronging with hundreds of people has been obliterated in this particular photograph? Because it's the night? No. Good idea, but no. 
Exactly. There's a 20 minute exposure time on these old cameras. So anyone moves in 20 minutes, they're gone. All right? The only two didn't was a chap getting his shoes cleaned down the corner and, and the, the, the young lad who was doing it. They're the only ones who remain in this photograph. An early example of the manipulation of the image, possibly not, but certainly a, a hint of the, the sort of ambiguity that, that photography engaged with around truth right from the beginning. Is the <coughs> photograph reliable? Is it truthful? Um, this would suggest there are questions to be raised. There have been photographers over the years who who have sworn by photography as being the ultimate witness, being able to see not just everything, but even more than you <coughs> could imagine. Now this photograph is taken by the, the photographer Joseph Stiglitz. It's a group of people arriving on the boat in New York at the turn of the century, it's called the steerage. And what Stiglitz argued about this photograph was that at the time that he took it, he didn't even know what was going on. There was so much happening in this photo. If you look at the top right, there's clearly some kind of meeting going on over there. The bottom left, there's a whole laundry. Bottom right, there's a family discussion happening. Up at the top, there, there are people looking out. There's just, you know, and his argument was that the, when you press the clicker on a photograph, you actually often don't know what's going to be there. So truthful is the camera that it can represent stuff that, that you're not even aware of as the photographer. He called it seeing everything. The camera sees everything. Edward Weston uh, made a name for himself taking photographs of vegetation and flowers. And he also talk, talked about the camera's innate honesty, how you could, if you put the lighting correctly and you got the focus right and you, you selected the, the right piece of vegetation, you could turn something very simple and crude into something beautiful. So he spoke about the, the innate honesty of the camera. Okay, I hope you're beginning to sense there's a, there's a bit of a polarization of views around, around what a camera can and can't do. Around the 1930s, we saw the birth of what became known as documentary photography. And uh, there were three women who were sent out by the American Farm Association to take photographs of, of how the Great Depression was really affecting people on the ground. So they went out, two of them, Dorothy Langer and uh, Margaret Borg-White, took a whole series of photographs which, which really raised awareness around what was happening as a result of the Great Depression. And you can see from this photograph, which is of destitute pea pickers in California, the real extent of what the Great Depression meant to people, the, the desperation, the poverty, the worry, the anxiety, um, and the destitution that, that affected so many people. Utter truth is essential, says Margaret Borkwhite, and that is what stirs me when I look through the camera. Utter truth, okay? But as Lewis Hine, the photography scholar, once wrote, photographs may not lie, but liars may photograph. And this is a great example. It's a bit harsh, maybe, to call little girls liars. But, um, but this, this photograph was published in 1917 by two cousins, Elsie and Francis. Um, it was published at a time when a huge new compendium, a sort of made-up compendium of, of fairies in, in the world, had just been published uh, in... Um, in the UK, so there was already a public appetite for, for fairies and for creatures and so on. So when this photograph came out, it caused a sensation. It was published all over the world. Here, at last, was the definitive proof that fairies do exist in the United Kingdom. And it was only when Elsie was in her 80s that she finally fessed up that she and Francis had cut these out of a magazine and stuck them in the flower bed. Okay? <laughs> Photographs may not lie, but liars may photograph. You can see the the ultimate manipulability of, of the image. 
This particular photograph starts to bring us a bit closer to the present. And I'll, this is the last one of, of these sort of uh, contextual ones that I want to show you. Roger Fenton, who um, you may have heard of the, the, the Crimean War, which took place in the, the mid 19th century. Um, the Charge of the Light Brigade is a, is a, it's a, it's a powerful cultural artifact in, in, in British uh, military memory. It's uh, the, one of the last great cavalry charges of modern warfare, the Light Brigade. Uh, 600 of them charged up the hill with their, with their swords and were blown to smithereens by the Russian cannons that were lined across the top of the, uh, top of the horizon. Uh, Lord Tennyson made the charge famous in his, in his poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, when he wrote, half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600 forward the Light Brigade. Charge for the guns, he said, into the valley of death. So a day later, Roger Fenton arrived with his, with his several suitcases of camera equipment carried by his trusty assistant to, to try and get the photograph of the fall of the, of the Light Brigade. And of course, um, the bodies had gone, the blood had seeped into the sand, there was nothing left, but he set up his photograph and he took this picture, which again was, was published all over the world. And in its own way, it's quite evocative. And you can see on the, on the road, the cannonballs left over and you can sort of imagine how evocative it was to, to have been galloping up, the, up that road, being showered by, by red-hot iron balls. Okay, so it was quite, quite an evocative photograph. But it wasn't the only picture that Roger Fenton took that day. In fact, this was the second one. The first one he took was this one. I don't know if you can notice the difference between the two of them. <laughs> That's the first one. What's the difference? Uh, cannonballs. Who do you think had to lift up 3,000 cannonballs and throw them onto the road? Roger Fenton's trusty assistant. So, um, in its first classic case of what, uh, what these days we call staging, um, of where you set up situation, which may well have been truthful at the time, but, uh, but actually wasn't in existence at the moment that this happened. So just to say that, that, that photography's relationship with truth has been ambiguous at best, okay? And this is, this is at the heart of, of um, the project that I'm here to discuss with you today. I've been working with the World Press, First, uh, World Press Photo Foundation and also with the Reuters Institute um, uh, on off for four years. I do an annual survey of all the photographers who apply for the, to enter the competition, they get a little uh, request to, to do our survey. Of the 5,000 who enter, we usually get around uh, one and a half to 2,000 who sit down and do a 60 question questionnaire, asking everything from ethics to how much they earn, to what they do, to, and so on. So it's quite, a, it's quite a, a serious amount of data about what's happening among professional photojournalists. Of course, we can't apply this to all photojournalists because only a certain group of, of, of photographers enter this competition every year, so this can't be universalized to everybody, but we're still talking about a data set of not far off 10,000 photographers across more than 100 countries, so it gives us an indication at least. The part that I'm wanting to talk most to you about today is that I'm doing a study on, on student photojournalists because um, I want to see to what extent student photojournalists understand the ethics of photography in the digital era. Okay, and I'm going to talk more about that in a little minute. Two years ago, World Press Photo um, assembled their uh, jury to look at the photographs. They looked at about 50,000 photographs. They chose the best few in each category, and these are the finalists. At that point, they sat down to look at the, the, the raw photographs, so the, the, the basic um, data of the photographs, to see what, if anything, had been done to them 
and they ended up disqualifying 20% of the finalists. And this caused a huge furore in professional uh, photography and photojournalism because, you know, here we're basically disqualifying a fifth of the world's best photographers on the basis that they cheated. Um, and you can imagine that the discussion that that, uh, that that created. So as a result, World Press Photo have, have, uh, have sort of re-established a, a code of conduct with the rules. And it's these rules that I'm going to be sort of using to test you a little bit in a minute. Um, these aren't the only rules, and the rules can vary from one country and from one news organization to the next. So I don't claim these to be the, the final arbiter, but they're a pretty good indication of the, of the rules of the game among professionals as they are at the moment. Okay. So let me ask you a few questions. What I'm going to ask you to do is um, I'm going to ask a question and uh, I'm going to ask you to put your hands up to say if you think that's ethically acceptable or not. Okay, we're going to do a few of those and they're going to get more difficult. Okay, and then when we've done that, I'll move on to the next thing. So there's a photograph here. So it's, it's a random photograph, but just to help you visualize what I'm talking about. And the question is, is it acceptable ethically in a news photograph, remember we're only talking about news photography here, to selectively enhance one color? For example, the red t-shirt. Is it okay to make that red t-shirt more vivid than it might be looking at the original thing? So anyone who thinks that that's fine, put the hand up. Okay, probably not even half. Um, yes, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. We can come, you can ask me more about this later when we come back to it. All right. Okay. Is it acceptable to reduce the vividness of the color? So can you kind of diminish the color a little bit? Is that okay? Hands up who says yes. Yeah, and, and you're right. So still half of you are, are sitting on the sidelines, and that's fine. <laughs> is it okay to change the color of the t-shirt? All right, maybe from red to blue. Everyone thinks that's okay, put their hand up. Okay, you're very wise. Yes, that is wrong. You can't do that. I say wrong, of course, these, uh, this is probably a harsh <coughs> word to use in ethics. But yeah, you can't, you can't change the hue or the color of anything in a photograph. Can you enhance the colors generally by processing the photograph through a preset filter? So can you enhance the colors just by using a preset filter in the camera? All those who say yes, and you are right, because all photographs are pre-processed when you use DSLR cameras these days. So you can't disqualify people because it's... Well, I said this is, this is, these are the rules for this particular competition. So, and they, they can tell by looking at the, the, the data from the... Because these days, you know, in the analog days, photography was, was, was a chemical process. Now it's a, it's a data process. So you can look at the data of the photograph and you can see what's been done to it. Has it been enhanced? Has it been changed? Have things been added? And so on. So, so we're just using the World Press Photos uh, <coughs> code of conduct or rules of entry for its competition as a guide to discuss this. So, I mean, there may be examples here where I say, no, that's, you can't do that. And in some places and in some organizations, that's okay but this is the, the, the sort of benchmark that I'm using. And it's a, it's a, big, uh, it's a big player in, in the photography industry, and I think it's, uh, um, its guidelines are important, but, but they may be contested. All right, what can you add to a news photo? Can you add hair highlights? Nope, you can't add highlights. <laughs> can you enhance body parts? Yes? No, you're correct. Can you add in greater contrast into the photo? Yeah, now you get it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And finally, can you clone content to, you know, if there's something at the side that's, that's, that doesn't really affect the photo, but you want to get rid of it, can you clone, say, a bit of grass from here and put it over there? Is that acceptable? 
No, not acceptable. Okay. All right. And then a last, a last of the easy ones before we get on to the slightly more complicated ones. What can you take out of a photo? So that was what, what can you put in. Can you take physical um, marks of the body? Can you, can you airbrush body parts? Yes? Correct. You can't? What about small objects like that are, that are peripheral to the, um, to the picture, like a, a cigarette butt or a coin or something that's, that's lying in the way but isn't part of the... Can you take out little objects? Or think you can? Say yes? No, nope, we can't take those out either. Um, and in addition, uh, reflected light spots and shadows are also, you cannot take those out either. Nope. Um, and finally, uh, any extraneous items on, on the border of a picture that you can't crop out. In other words, if you did crop it out, it would affect the photo. Can you, can you crop something? Can you take something out right on the edges? What do you think? Crop it means when you, when you sort of cut it by, by size. You can, only, you can only make it bigger or smaller. Okay. No, you can't. Uh, you can. The, the ca something that can be... But you can't take these out the edge. If you can crop it, then, then you're allowed to. But, but if you crop it and it's still there, you can't, uh, you can't take it out. Okay. All right. Well, those, those are some of the easy ones. Let's get a bit more complicated now. Um, this photograph was taken uh, by my friend and colleague, Kevin Carter. It won him the uh, Pulitzer Prize in 1993, but there was a huge amount of controversy following this photograph, which in part contributed to his death uh, a couple of years later. So I wanted to ask this photograph, this is a question of intervention, right? You're a photographer, you take this picture. Let's look at some of the options. I'm going to give you four, there may be others. Number one, as a news photographer, your role is to observe, not participate. You cannot intervene even in this situation. Okay, that's option one. Number two, you take the photograph, but as a human being, you have to step in to prevent harm where you can. You take the picture, but then you put your camera down, you help the child, that's number two. Number three, don't take the photograph. As a human being, first and foremost, your duty is to prevent harm. You should seek help immediately for the child. Number four, you shouldn't be there in the first place because you're taking advantage of vulnerable people and propagating stereotypes about famine in Africa. Okay, so four, four answers. You do nothing. You take a photo and then you do something. You don't take the photo and you do something. You shouldn't be there in the first place. Okay? Right, all those in favour of doing nothing. Put the hands up. Number one. This is number one. So you cannot intervene in this situation. No one? Okay. Number two, take the picture and then try and do something to help. Yeah, that's the majority, I would say. Okay. Number three, don't take the photograph at all. Just help the child. Couple. And the last one, don't be there in the first place. Okay. Um, according to the, 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 the rules, um, I mean... This one is a lot more ambiguous. Let, let me just add a couple of things to... I think the general consensus, that num number two, in hindsight, is, is, the, is the consensual position. But I want to just throw a couple of things into you. Number one, if you turn around in this photograph, if you move the camera around, you will see not just a few, you will see another 10,000 people in a very similar situation on the other side of the, of the, of the picture. Okay? It's not a question of... You know, maybe this, this child is, is the most vulnerable and that's, that's what makes the, the photograph so powerful. But you've got to remember too that she is one of many, many, many people in, a, in exactly the same position. And when you step in to intervene, 
you know, who do you help as a photographer, as a journalist? Who do you, who do you help? And, and where does that role for you end? And the other question, or the issue I wanted to throw up was that Kevin had just arrived here from, from covering a, a brutal civil war in South Africa where death and blood and violence was, was part of his everyday uh, life. And, uh, and I think he would have been uh, inured to this kind of uh, shock and, uh, you know, and devastation, you know, far more so than, than you or I who happened to be there at the time. You know, it wasn't just you were parachuted in and there was a child and you take the picture and you wander off. The, the, the context is a lot more complicated, both from a personal view for him uh, and also from, uh, you know, from, the, from the, con the wider context itself. So let's, let's accept that, that, that possibly um, in hindsight and you know, without, without real knowledge of the situation that, that you take the photograph, you try and help, that, that makes sense. But, but it is a bit more complicated than that. Another example. This is Rashid Stuggy. You're a freelance photographer, all right? You're walking down the street, and this is a, a true story. Um, when not far from you, an infamous gangster appears. You're quite happy because you've been wanting to get a picture of this guy for a while. You start taking pictures. As you're taking pictures, someone drives up in a car and murders him, okay? So now you've got, got pictures of him before, during, and after the murder scene. It was particularly ghoulish because they set fire to him, which you can kind of see on the front page of the Cape Times um, in the top two pictures there. All right, you, you get all the pictures, you publish them, but within minutes, the police are knocking on your door saying, right, we want the photographs because we want to see who, who murdered this guy and, uh, and it's your civic duty to hand them over, okay? So here are your ethical options. You give them the pictures. You publish your photo and if it helps and you do your duty, then that's fine. You hand them over, number one. Number two, you give them the pictures, but you make them fight for it. They have to go through due legal, legal process. They have to subpoena you or your newspaper and they have to they have to get it from you in you know you're not just going to hand them over all right number three refuse to hand them over but but expect to be forced to expect them to, to use everything they can to to get them back from you and finally refuse to give them the pictures go to prison if you have to okay so do you hand them over voluntarily those pictures to the police and of course this is country and even region specific so the, once again there's no sort of uh, you know, right or wrong here. So, you know, you're not, uh, this, is just, this is just kind of illustrating, if you like, that ethics are complex, they're difficult. It's the, the understanding what's right to do in different situations is, is, a, is a difficult process. Uh, okay, so give them the pictures voluntarily. Quite a few. Um, give it to them, but only once they've gone through the legal process, probably mostly. Um, refuse to give them, but expect to be forced one or two, and then uh, go, refuse to, to hand the pictures and go to prison if you have to. No one does that. And that was the option that, um, that the photographer took. He didn't go to prison in the end because right at the last, the, the state decided to, uh, to not pursue the charges, but he was facing a jail term and uh, his name was Benny Gould. He was a South African photographer. Um, but again, just an illustration of, of these things are, are not always as easy as you might think. All right, getting the shot. We're just going to do a couple more of these and then I'll, I'll just talk more generally before I wrap up. We're covering a protest. A child walks past with a huge flag fluttering over his head. We'll make a great shot with a perfect backdrop, only you spotted it too late. What do you do? So he's gone past, all right? You missed the shot. You tell him to go back up the road again and come back so you can take the shot. Because after all, that is what he did, so 
not too far beyond the realms of possibility. Two, you, you tell him to wait, you go ahead and you try and get as best shot as you can without necessarily sending him backwards again. Three, you've missed the shot and, and uh, you just have to wait for someone else to, to go by or look for something else. Okay, those are your three options. Tell him to do it again. Tell him to wait while you shoot and, and look for something else. All right, those are your three options. Number one, um, tell him to go back up the road and, uh, and walk past again. Very good, very good. That's called staging, that's definitely not allowed. Ask the child to wait while you circle around to catch the best drop, so ask him to wait and then, and then move off to, to shoot. Yeah, one or two, and, and that, that's uh, on the, on the, not really acceptable. And three, as most of you have opted for, go and, go and do something else, go and find something else. Yeah. Okay, last one of these. Oh no, I've got two more of these. What can I move? You're covering a war zone, You've come across a large cache of ammunition, including possibly chemical weapons. The problem is they are hidden behind a large net and by pieces of junk and rubbish. How do you get the best shot? Okay. You, one, remove the rubbish and take the shot. Two, get the best picture you can without moving anything. Three, take all the rubbish away, take a shot and then put it all back the way you found it. Four, take pictures of the scene, then remove it, take the shot and then put it back again. And finally, try and get somebody else to move the stuff and not do it yourself. Okay, five different options. Which of these is, is called manipulating the image and which isn't? So, what do you do? Number one, carefully remove the net and rubbish and take the shot. Not one person, okay. Number two, get the best picture you can without moving anything. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much uh, two-thirds of you. Three, remove the rubbish, take the shot and then put it all back as you found it. No one fell for that one. Uh, four, take pictures of the scene, then remove the rubbish, and then put things back to their original state. One or two. And finally, get somebody else to, to move stuff for you. Okay. No, well, okay. Uh, according to the, the World Press photo, the only thing you can do there is number two, which is you can't, you can't start moving stuff around and, uh, and, and staging uh, pictures by, by intervening in a scene. Okay? You, can't, you can't do that. We can talk about that later. Finally, Mr. Trump. This was a, a picture that was taken by Time magazine in 2015. Time actually brought the eagle with them and said, there you go, Mr. Trump, put that on your arm. And actually there's some quite funny video because this thing absolutely terrifies Mr. Trump. It keeps kind of flapping his wings and he's, he's, I think he's worried about his, about his wig getting caught in the talons. But there was a lot of discussion about whether this was an ethical photograph. Um, and I'll, I'll, so here are the, do you think it was ethical? Here are the three. Yes, this was ethical. It was a portrait photograph. It wasn't meant to represent reality. It's fine to introduce interesting elements, number one. Number two, yes, it's ethical, as long as you declare that elements of the photograph were introduced by the photographer. And three, no, Time Magazine is a news organization uh, and can't be seen to be arranging things to, in their best symbolic format, all right? Three options. Number one, yes, it was fine. Few. Uh, number two, yes, but you need to declare. Also a few. Three, no, not, not, not ethical. Some of you are sitting on the fence. All right. Um, look, I think uh, it's true to say opinion is divided. There's no uh, sort of black or white or, or right or wrong answer here. Um, certainly number two of all the options, you know, if, if they did do that, it should be declared. But, but uh, you know, I think this is something maybe we can discuss. Um, there's no particular rule. Um, I think when it comes to portraiture, which is slightly different to news photography, you can argue that it's a slightly different uh, 
you could argue that's different, but is, is news portraiture <coughs> different to portraiture? I don't know, that's something we can, we can talk about. Okay, certainly the, 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 I, I've done a, a small study just of my own photography students, um, and also just looking around you as well, and, and, and I think it's fair to say that there's a degree of uncertainty around what, what these rules actually are, right? Um, but it does raise questions around a number of things. For instance, imagine all these new photographers and photojournalists going into the workplace. What is a lack of clarity around the rules? What sort of impact is it going to have on job security as, as these young people enter digital creative industries and start to make a living? Okay, what, is it, what kind of impact is it going to have on, on personal security and risk? That shot of the gangster, for instance, the reason that, that Benny Gould said he's, there's no ways he's handing over that photograph to them was that he said, if I hand over my photograph to the police to be used in evidence, every time I walk out with my camera, I'm going to be a target because they're going to think that I work for the police, which in effect I do, because everything I take I hand over to them when they want it. That's why he refused to do it. Okay? So if, if photographers are uncertain about you know, about their role and about the, the limits of what they're allowed to do, you, know, you, can, you can appreciate that that's going to have some sort of impact on the risk. And, and believe me, this is a very risky occupation, as I'll, as I'll show you in a minute. And finally, it'll make people vulnerable to unscrupulous commissions and demands. You know, if someone says, you must go and do this. With, when, if you don't know the rules, it's very hard to, to resist that. Okay. Just going to give you some of the key findings and, do, and then do one last little case study before I wrap up. So this is over the four years that this survey has been done. So not far off 10,000 photographers. What are some of the high po uh, interesting points? Photographers generally very highly educated. Okay, two thirds have university qualifications, which is quite interesting. Um, earnings tend to be very low. A third making less than $10,000 a year. Three quarters making less than 40,000. Okay, so it's not a very well paid uh, business. Many of the photographers, uh, their photographs are stolen and are used without them getting paid. It's also very dangerous, as I mentioned, with more than 90%, and I see even, even uh, the current survey, which is, which is live at the moment, more than 90% report that one of their greatest fears is the, the, the threat of physical risk or injury. So 90%, there can't be that many occupations where 90% feel their lives are genuinely at risk uh, in their day-to-day -day duties. Okay. Here's a, a bar chart, which I won't spend too much time on. Um, so it's, it's uh, uh, arranged according to gender, and I'm going to come back to gender in a minute. So risk of injury or death, you know, very strong uh, element. Also uh, erratic income, uh, very strong too, with a range of other things that people worry about, and very often a, a gender difference between the two. And this is a quick look at financial situation, which shows that, that most photographers tend to say they're managing, but that um, women tend to be uh, struggling more than men. Looking at the red bar chart, um, more men think the situation is, is pretty good. Uh, and, um, and it's pretty close with the group who say it's very difficult. So some, some, some quite, uh, again, gender-specific differences between financial security. A few more findings. Certainly, uh, the digital era has, has added new complexity to what was already a difficult and complex situation, not least photography's connection to truth. Um, it's clear that, that while the industry is against manipulation of photographs and against staging, that in many cases this, this, is, this is happening even amongst the top and professional photographers. 52% said they sometimes stage images of, of the photographers, 52%. 
You all agreed that that was wrong. They all agreed that that was wrong, but they all do it. Um, some feel that amateur or citizen photographers are a risk, but generally speaking, they're quite positive about, about you know, they can't be everywhere all the time and, and having images available isn't a bad thing for the industry. But notwithstanding all that, there's a lot of positivity. On the whole, photographers, they have a high degree of job satisfaction, they're creative, and, and, and they mostly are happy with, with what they've chosen to do, which I think is, is probably a good thing. The last finding is this question of gender imbalance, and we found almost from the first hundred responses that came in is there's a massive gender disparity in, in professional photography. On the whole, 85% male. The industry which is 85% male, uh, and if you, if you exclude fashion photography and some of the other, uh, and you look at news and, um, and so on, you, it, and sport, it becomes much more distorted. You're, you're sort of talking about, in most situations, most news photographers are male. You know, that raises all sorts of, uh, of issues. And there's been a lot of discussion in, in film studies around this question of the male and the female gaze. You know, who's looking at who? Where is the power in that relationship? Um, you know, what is the um, uh, agenda of, of this look that, that, that takes place? And I think some of that can be applied to photography in quite an interesting way. We, we had a, a section uh, last year and this year uh, specifically directed at women photographers. We asked, do you face barriers in your work as a photojournalist? 62% yes, said yes. We said, how do you experience this discrimination? And they gave this list of answers, sexism in the industry, lack of opportunities, industry stereotypes and practices, lack of regular income and social and family expectations. So the data certainly seems to suggest that, that women are a very small group already in the overall cohort but even within that group, they're, they're, they're more at risk. They, they um, less often uh, work for larger companies. They're, they've got a, a sort of wider range of activities they do. In sociologists uh, call it uh, precarity. They have, precari have a much higher degree of precariousness than their male colleagues, making it likely that even fewer of them will be in, involved in professional news photography as we go forward. Obviously, that is a major issue um, for the industry as a whole. I won't dwell run out of time a little bit, so I won't dwell too much on that. Self-employed, female 72%, male 53%. So you can see there's a, there's a big discrepancy. Uh, large media company long-term contract, male 23% employed by large, large companies on, on long-term contracts, only 10% of women. So the whole industry is, is, has a gender distortion within it with women uh, being far more at risk uh, than men. Now, what does that mean, actually? What does it mean to have only men taking pictures of big news events? Only news events you know, being portrayed through the eyes of men. Now, I did this study um, just recently. It was, it's a real simple thing. It probably won't stand up in any um, sort of serious peer review process, but I just do it as, as an illustrative process. Now, I looked at, I, I, Google searched on 9-11 images, okay? 9-11. And, and the, at the first run, it came up with 200 images. Of these 200 images, only 15 had women in them, okay, of 200. All the rest, almost exclusively, were men. So 9-11, in the photographic historical record, is, it was a male event, okay? Men marching in to help, men getting all emotional, men helping other men, men hugging men, more men hugging men. <laughs> And then a few women, and they, you know, of the 15 that remained, 13 
were women either as victims, helpless, overwhelmed, or mourners. So out of 200, only two are left. All right? This is one of them. Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State, one of the most powerful people in, in America. Uh, I, would, I would say this is a fairly subordinate... Um, Michelle, Michelle, Obama. Michelle Obama, I'm sorry, you're right. But, um, but still, taking, very much taking the back seat here to, to Obama, who's, uh, who's looking at the devastation. But that's, so that's only one of them. And then the final one is this one. One out of 200 photographs, which actually shows a woman doing something. Now, I came across a piece of research by, by a scholar called Dowler recently, who, who quotes Captain Brenda Berkman of the New York Fire Department, saying, I was struck by the total invisibility of women in the media coverage of the rescue and recovery efforts in New York. The picture of an all-male rescue effort was not only historically inaccurate, but threatened to discourage young women from considering careers in the emergency services. So maybe this is just a bit of an illustrative example that um, you know, if, if men are the only ones who, who take photographs to capture a major event, a world-changing event such as 9-11, what does that actually mean? And what are the implications of that? And maybe we can, we can stretch that broader. What about male photographers operating in, in Muslim countries, for instance? Or, or photographers, international photographers operating in, in situations where women are, find themselves in particularly vulnerable situations? It's, it's likely you're just not going to have the scope of photographs, the access that, that you would have otherwise. So, and I think the industry recognizes that this is a major problem, but we can talk about that a little bit more. Just to wrap up, last two slides. Is there a future for photojournalists? The bad news, um, they're underpaid, most of them. There are a couple in, in the sample who make more than 100 grand a year in dollars, which isn't bad, but mostly it's under 10 grand. Um, so earnings are low. Um, there does seem to be a lot of, uh, of ethical confusion. There is this horrible gender uh, distor distortion, and, and it's evident that, that while almost all feel that understanding ethics is important, that either they don't fully understand them or they don't uh, actually adhere to them in, in some circumstances. And that would suggest that uh, th that's a difficult platform for prof professional photography to proceed and to, and to be sustainable on. The good news, two-thirds said they were happy with, with the, the work they were doing. 55% mostly are always positive about the future not too bothered about the, what, what, what I call the massification of, of photography, where everyone has a, a phone and a, and a camera and can take pictures. Um, and notwithstanding all of that and the, and the challenges and the risks, the survey suggests that there's a high degree of job satisfaction, creative expression, and personal reward among professional photographers. So there's a lot to be said for the work and for doing the work. So on the one hand, a lot of challenges and problems. On the other hand, people who genuinely appreciate uh, doing what they're doing and find it rewarding and, and creative. And that's the end of, of the form presentation. Thank you for listening. Thank you.